I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. They say you should never meet your heroes. They're wrong. I recently had the huge honour of spending almost an hour in conversation with Robert McFarlane, author of nine books including Mountains of the Mind, The Old Ways, Landmarks and, most recently, The Lost Words. I've admired Robert's work for many years, in particular his reflections on imagination and his determination to keep alive, in our minds and our culture, a whole library of words which help us to better articulate our place in and relationship with the natural world. As well as being a writer, Robert teaches at Cambridge about language and landscape. As he told me, the convergences of those two things, along with social justice and environmental justice, are the things I've written most about. Robert is one of the most fascinating people to follow on Twitter, and he had recently tweeted a quote by Rebecca Solnit where she said, The destruction of the earth is due in part to a failure of the imagination, or to its eclipse by systems of accounting that can't count what matters. So, I started by asking him how he would assess the state of health of our collective imagination in 2018. Impoverished, vulnerable, but with surprising flourishings, I think would be my answer to that. In that, in that quotation, Rebecca, Rebecca challenges something she calls the tyranny of the quantifiable. And actually, I, I suppose I would oddly say a word for the tyranny of the quantifiable. We, we, need, the quanti- we need to quantify. It's vital for change and not least how we measure our baselines, how we, how we keep track of shifting baseline syndrome. So I don't fully agree with Rebecca that, that we, should, we, should, we should seek out and purge the quantifiable wherever we find it, but I think she's absolutely right that imagination has been closed down, and particularly that uncertainty is a space that can be inhabited with enormous sort of generative richness as a consequence is something that we feel uneasy with, and I think that is in some sense, a uh, the decline of rationalism that has that has excluded that as a possibility. So I would say a word both for the the rigors of naming and knowing, and for the possibilities of being uncertain. And uh, what would you identify as being some of the factors that are responsible for that imaginative poverty? Um, I think it's very it's very tempting to say um, new media, uh, and I'm not sure I agree with that, partly because my own adventures into into social media over the past year after a decade of extreme scepticism towards them have been so exciting and have led to so much possibility. So in an odd way, I see that, that, that that's one of the benefits as well as the, the threats to imagination in our time is, is the speed and the echoic nature of communication. Uh, I, I think um, I think that hope is very hard to come by right now, particularly in terms of the changes that people like you and me are interested in. By which I mean that the sense of crisis, that as something that has arrived, that is declaring itself all around us, all of the time, at a local and at a planetary level, is so vast that we end up in something that Sian and Guy who's a cultural theorist at Harvard at the moment, calls the, the stupline, she calls it, or stuplimity. And there she's taken two words, um, stupor and the sublime, and she's crushed them together to make a very contemporary affect, is what she calls it, a very contemporary experience. Her point being that when we, can, when we look at the troubles that we're confronted with, 
they are sublime, they are so vast in that old sense of the word sublime that we can hardly comprehend them. And what that results in is what she calls a, a series of minor fatigues, concussions to the spirit that leave us in a stupor. And I, I feel that, I don't know if you feel, I mean, you're somebody who's made change happen, but I feel that often. You look around, I have this, these conversations where often I look around, talk to people, and I say, but what can we do? It's all so awful. So that, for me, that, that repeated, not so much single hammer blow, but that repeated concussion to hope and to dreaming, I think is, is at the root of this impoverishment. Mm-hmm. I interviewed uh, someone called Lise Van Susteren, who uses the term pre-traumatic stress disorder the idea that living with the knowledge of climate change and so on puts us into a state of trauma which in turn uh, shuts down the imagination and for her the way through that is through action is is through doing stuff that that's Mm -hmm. that that, that's the remedy but by my reading of your work you would also suggest that finding new or old names for what we see happening around us uh, is part of this too and i love the bit at the end of landmarks where you say we also need words for the things we see happening in the Anthropocene that we that, that, that we haven't seen before, so I wonder yeah. if to, to what extent is is knowing the names of things or creating the names for things a, a remedy to that kind of pre-traumatic <laughs> stress? Pre-traumatic stress, well, yeah, I think um, well, Glenn Albrecht, whose work you probably know, talks about solastalgia and psychoterratica, and it's interesting that we are even reaching for these neologisms to describe the feelings of of being alive in the Anthropocene. These are more versions of what Aldo Leopold uh, says famously in the late 40s. He says, to be a conservationist, to be an ecologist, is to live always in a world of wounds, he says. And that, that you know, the, the Greek word for wound is trauma. And so there, there is a sense that you are stunned, stupefied into, into a kind of traumatic inaction. So it's, it's very, very interesting to hear that, that chime with the, with the other interview that you've done. I'm sure it's something... You talk about a lot in your work and your experiences. And yeah, action is a, is a fabulous remedy. And language is action. Language is a world-making, world-shaping force. It's a geological force. It's shaping the Anthropocene because the discourse we use shapes, of course, everything that we encounter in the world and the ways we, we frame the world to ourselves. The metaphors we use um, uh, deliver us hope or they, or they foreclose possibility. Uh, the ways that we represent uh, each to each other or the human and the more than human world are incredibly powerful and determining in, in, in the ways we then go on and, and behave towards those other entities. So the, the, the cornerstone, the keystone of my, as it were, language project is diversity. And that, in, in, in another form, the form of biodiversity, is, is, is the keystone of, of modern conservation, I guess. And um, I would rather that we have and that we use and this immense richness of language for landscape and nature than that we, um, that we make do with, with generics, uh, though generics are sometimes necessary. So the image I often use is just a very simple biodiverse one. You know, would, would, would you rather, um, would you rather be, be lying on your, on your belly looking at a golf course fairway with its single species or would you be, lying in a wildflower meadow surrounded by this astonishing humming diversity. Well, those are our language choices. And I think that hunger is very, is very widely shared. So it seems to me both a, uh, apparently an ornamental aspect of, of the ways we relate, but actually to me a fundamental aspect of the ways we relate to this more than human world. What's the relationship between diversity 
and imagination. When we live in a world where we've lost half the species uh, or half the creatures that we share the planet with during my lifetime uh, and half the insects during my son's lifetime, how does that uh, how does that in turn affect our imagination and our sense of what's possible, do you think? Yeah, well, I think um, this very resonant to me phrase that Michael McCarthy uses, the great thinning, I think is, is, is a thinning uh, in its most important form of a, of a material basis of life, of a, di of a biodiversity. But it's also a thinning of, of language and a thinning of possibility. What's extinguished when ecosystems go, when species go, is, when languages go, is, uh, is knowledge. Is, is possibility, is a deep, ancient coding. And I believe uh, in what might be called distributed cognition, which is to say that the ways we think are deeply shared between ourselves and other entities, a kind of intersubjective sense that the ways we think are not contained within our single skulls, but are made possible by the surroundings, the weather, the lights, the atmosphere, the ecologies, the landscapes and the people and the objects with which we share our spaces. They do our thinking for us and with us uh, and, and sometimes to us. So of course when we lose these things then the possibility of thought is thin as well. And um, uh, you quote in Landmarks, you quote Evans Calder Williams uh, who says that the Anthropocene imagination crawls with narratives of survival, which I love to mm. say. Well, but mm. Why is it that we keep telling ourselves unhelpful narratives? And what would the telling of positive tales of the future look like? What would stories of a healthy Anthropocene look <laughs> like if we started yeah. to tell those? Well, well, that's, uh, I think... I mean, let's let's set aside the question of the naming of the Anthropocene itself, uh, which is a very vexed business, but we can come back to that if you like. It's something I'm, I'm very interested in. Then the question of what a good Anthropocene might look like. Well, I think it's important to imagine the possibility of a good Anthropocene, because otherwise we end up on the, <clears throat> the fatalized, overdetermined downward slide of the helter-skelter towards hell. Um, and that, that that's no good, really. We need to hold possibility for change and, and hope, hope. Hope, as Rebecca Solomon says, exists, is made possible by uncertainty, by not knowing what the future holds. Um, <clears throat> so what, what might good Anthropocene stories be? Well, they would, they would hold the possibility for change. They would hold the possibility for replenishment, for, for turns back to biodiversity. Um, and I suppose they would also hold the possibility for good in, in terms of human action, um, something we were talking about before we began recording was what you call a kind of self-world or self-organizing possibility to, to, to group human action when it's energized by, by good, by what we would understand as the good. And of course, group human action can be energized and organized by the bad as well, but let's, let's stay with the good for a moment. Um, I think of that as a kind of wildness. Wildness has its origins as a word in, in the idea of self-willedness. And when wildness is released into, into, into thought, into societies, into communities, it can, it can rip through them like wildfire for the good as well. It's just we too often hear about the bad. Uh, you also, in Landmarks, you wrote that our children's vanishing encounters with nature represent a loss of imagination as well as a loss of primary experience. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about that and also... <coughs> 
Is it the same for adults? <laughs> yeah, I think it is the same for adults. Uh, I mean, we. What I meant by that is that when um, when nature is foreclosed as a set of primary experiences within a within a life within a, a life way a life world, um, then among the things that get closed down, I think, are forms of play, forms of improvisation, forms of of, of learning and heuristic forms of interaction with. Um, with with other other children and other and other life forms that um, that of course have their outworkings in story, in the way language is used, in the way narratives are told. And I think I give the example there of the to me annually fascinating uh, analysis of the 500 word story competition that's run every year in Britain, where hundreds of thousands of children write their 500 word stories, and we get this extraordinary glimpse into a communal imagination as it's at work within childhood. There is no other database like it. And OUP, who organize it, um, run a kind of big data analysis of, of what, what the story types are. And some of them are amazing, incredibly hopeful. Um, I think the year 2015 it was, probably when Landmarks came out, one of the most popular stories was finding a cure for Ebola. And I just thought, wow, how brilliant that this is preoccupying. The, the narrative minds of our children, um, but the but the other was um, uh, was gaining overnight fame as a footballer or YouTube star, and I thought, well, okay, there's your <laughs> there's your counterbalance to the Ebola cure. So yeah, everything is happening there. But yeah, I, I guess I return to the sense that what what is enabled by the living world is is not just a form of kind of internalized self improvement for the individual, and is not either just a form of good or ill for the more than human world. It, it has profound cultural and imaginative outworkings. Uh, we talked before about digital and, uh, and, and, and technology's virtual uh, world and so on. And I wonder how you, how you think of that relationship in terms of uh, um, you know, building the imagination and access to, to those and the impact they've had. And one of the people that I interviewed mm -hmm. was Douglas Rushkoff, who said to me, we've ended up over the last 20 years disabling the cognitive and collaborative skills that we would have needed to address a collective problem like climate change. Mm. Would you agree with that? And, and, and how do you think is the best way to uh, live alongside those technologies and keep our imagination and access to nature and wilderness intact? Yeah, well, I think you, the, 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 last, the last question there uh, in that string of questions is probably the key one. It's, it's how to have both, I think it seems to me. And perhaps if you'd asked me this question in 2014 or 2015, I'd have given a more oppositional answer to it. Um, these days, I, I'm extremely wary of and always keen to uncouple simple oppositions between you know, tech and nature um, and indeed between tech slash new media and imaginative impoverishment. I mean, here we are talking about the possibilities of imagination uh, 400 miles away from one another by the, by the miracles of a connective technology uh, known, as, known as Skype. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. Uh, so I, these days I'm pretty, I'm pretty wary of those oppositions. And particularly when I hear the word collaborative, uh, touted as something that's been destroyed by technology. I find that very odd. I mean, as a, as a university teacher, I find my 
the students I've admitted, uh, interviewed and admitted over the past 15 years, very small data set in a very particular context, obviously, but their, their sense of, of, of worldliness has transformed in the course of that 15 years. Um, and their, their specific specialist intelligences with regard to literature and geography, maybe, maybe not so much, that's stayed constant, but their, their sense of connection has transformed and their wider knowledge. Uh, my own experiences, having stayed very clear of social media for, for, for well over a decade, then to take to it a year and three months ago and to find its astonishing power to, pr to, to produce that wildness of action that we were talking about earlier, that, uh, to produce collaboration, to drive change. It's been an absolute revelation. So um, clearly there are things we need to be, be concerned about and we perhaps, you know, we can shift this conversation to questions of time ch children are spending indoors, time children are spending on screens. Uh, and these are these are these are clearly shifting. It's not it's a multifactorial issue, but um, but screens are clearly involved. So, um, yeah, huge forces for good, huge forces for um, for stasis. Mm. And if if you were to uh, to identify what the ideal conditions would be for us to be as imaginative as possible, would you have a sense of what some of those conditions might be in your, you know, in, in your experience? Well, I, I suppose I, I have to note that in some ways imagination is um, is a function of privilege. There's a version of there's a version of Wolf's A Room of One's Own at work here that that that, that your basic you know needs on Maslow's hierarchy need need to have been fulfilled, perhaps before imagination becomes possible. So. Um, uh, I, I would note that you know my own creative work is made possible by having a uh, you know a salaried tenured position in a university, which I work very hard for and believe believe in as a as a vocation very powerfully and do my best for. But um, you know that 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 makes a lot possible for me. So imagination is squeezed out in the first instance by having to not not having to worry about bureaucracy and food, shelter, warmth, and and the other basics. Um, uh, that said, there are people like, for example, John Muir, um, the uh, Dunbar-born, obviously, American uh, kind of father of the American National Parks and massively influential environmentalist who who was the son of a Methodist who moved out to Wisconsin and basically beat him, dropped him down a well to, to hack wells from a very young age until he was old. And then he lost an eye in a, or nearly lost an eye in a factory accident, you know. Muir had an, had an enormous number of adversities to overcome, and in a way, those adversities, when he finally was free of them and, and, and became a shepherd in the Sierra Nevada, they, they opened space for him. So clearly there's a very complex relationship between adversity and imagination, and I don't for a moment want to suggest that only those who are well off can be imaginative, but, but I think it's also important to, to note the kind of protected space, the what-if space, that you need to think in this way. If a wren flies past us <laughs> or sings near us, but we don't hear it or we don't notice it or we don't know what it is, what have we lost? Um, technically, we haven't lost anything because we never we never kind of had it in the first place, as it were, in terms of consciousness. But um, uh, and the wren is doing very very well in Britain, eight million breeding pairs. Um, so in a way, the wren doesn't need us to notice it. And yet, um, what have we lost? We've lost a, a moment of wonder. We've lost, which in its powerful, piercing way, 
Uh, Descartes says wonder is the first of all the passions, partly because he says it's it, it prompts us first to be astonished and then to explain the source of that astonishment. And I think that idea of, of amazement followed by the wish to understand how amazement is made is a very it's a very powerful two two stroke engine, as it were, for change. Um, uh, but also, I think this this idea that, that that I believe in very profoundly that good names well used are a sort of portals, really. They 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 summon a a creature or another into our way of being, into our consciousness, and they allow us to um, to enter respectfully its its ways of being, and to know that a wren has crossed your path as it flits from cover to cover is to become aware of, of, of the Ren world and in turn to become aware of the more than human world. And I think those of us who are lucky enough to have some degree of tuning in to that more than human world underestimate how tuned out it is to most people. And I don't by any means mean to suggest that those who know are some kind of blessed clerisy we're the lucky ones. We're lucky because of the ways we've been brought up or you know, whatever it is. But um, to not see and to not notice at all that this this other world is anything other than a kind of wallpaper or basic ecosystem service provider. Why would you give a shit about what's happening to it, except insofar as it may subtract that ecosystem service from your life at some future point? Why would you care? There's no need at all to care. I did a dawn chorus. I went on sound ah. camp this year. Yeah. Uh, I did it last year as well, but I did it here at Dartington and uh, got up and went out for the dawn chorus. And I and even like it's now a week or so later, it somehow sort of tuned my brain into listening out for the birds. Normally I'd be cycling along and in my thoughts and I would never really notice, but just as I'm going around, it just sort of shifted my, my awareness sort of out a few... Um, whatever levels or whatever yeah and uh and i just sort of see all the birds everywhere and can and just find myself just tuning into the although I, I can't really tell them all apart from each other the different songs but it's really shifted my sort of experience of the world around me it's quite been quite yeah. a profound thing really well the, that I, I think i heard a blackbird calling in fact from from your from your end, uh, quite early in our conversation, I was thinking, "Oh, that's that's nice. That's, you must be you must be looking out somewhere, somewhere fairly um, fairly pleasant." But I, I guess the, the the trick then is to is to think about how we move from a sort of, as it were, my individual mindfulness, uh, which I, I'm all for. Um, that's great. I'm de- you know I'm, ve- I'm deeply invested in that and and the ways it's good for the individual and it's good for mental health and. Um, uh, but in a way, that what that treats is birdsong as another form of ecosystem service provider. Ah, oh, that's great. It's good for us. There it is. It's really nice to have it. It makes us feel better. Um, but what it doesn't do is reverse the flow, potentially doesn't reverse the flow and, 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 and turn that good back towards the birds and the habitats that make it possible. Uh, but I, I believe that, that that flow can be reversed and that precisely those moments wonder of, of, of encounter can be incredibly powerful sometimes massively powerful because of because they have amplified unintended consequences weeks later or years later or so structural consequences political consequences and in landmarks i talk about 
many of those stories where writers in particular have had an encounter, written about that encounter, that book has then been read by someone else, in the case of John Muir, read by Theodore Roosevelt, who then seeks Muir out, who then spends three days camping with Muir, who then goes off and signs into existence, um, you know, the greatest public lands designation of any American president, uh, some of which is now being rolled back by by Trump. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's this law of unintended consequences, all of which might come from something as simple as a blackbird song, I think makes the case for imaginative encounter and imaginative representation as potentially hugely valuable. But I also think we need to be wary of claiming too much for it. Mm. And, and that, that, that you use the word awe there, you know, that, that, that experience of awe that we can get yeah. from nature is something that we don't really find in many other places in life today. Um, I think, you know, other people would disagree and they would find it in, I don't know, the techno sublime. Um, they would find it in the astonishing flows of global capital around the world. Or, you know, I, I have friends who tell me you know, classically that I'm a, and I don't know if you get this either, but you can't, but that I'm, I'm a sort of um, uh, misanthropist, that I, you know, I'm much more interested in the astonishing achievements of of plants in warning each other via the hung, by, via the fungal network that they should uh, that there's an insect attack coming from the other side of the clearing than I am in the fact that humans have have put a man on the moon. Um, so I I'm yeah I I think other people have other sources of awe but yeah you and I are pretty are pretty wowed by by blackbird song. <laughs> and is that a fair accusation that you're more that you're more impressed with the the, the 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 fungi than the than the um, other thing you talked about than than the man on the moon yeah. um, I, I think intuitively yes I'm uh, perhaps that's a function of, of of having seen so much of what our species can do for good and ill um, but I I think perhaps the answer there is that we are we're extremely bad as um, anthropocentrists at acknowledging the achievements, if we want to call them that, or just the um, the complexities of other 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 worlds, other beings. And I think the um, the fungal network revelation is a an interesting cultural moment where it's taken us as Western science, let's just call it, it's taken 2,000 years for Western science to find a material basis for the intercommunication of of trees by means of a subterranean fungal network that arguably fuses the forest into a single superorganism. And you sit, you talk to First Nations or indigenous people specialists and they're like, yeah, <laughs> we've been telling you that for 2000 years. Um, well done. You're playing catch up. So, but, but now, you know, people are amazed by this. It's, a, it's when you hear about it for the first time, it, the people, you know, reel backwards, astonished. And I think that is, what's really interests me is that astonishment, <laughs> that they're so surprised that uh, the trees can communicate with one another. I think that says a lot about the ways we underestimate the world around us. You, uh, you're, you're a patron or a member of the Cambridge Curiosity and Imagination. Ah, yeah. Could you just say a little bit about that and what it does? They are, they're a tiny organisation that is doing exactly what you're interested in. They are, they are fusing science and playfulness, education and space, landscape and, 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 and childhood 
and trying to see curiosity as a and wonder as world-changing attitudes, if you like, and to find ways of, of, of bringing creative makers, poets, and map makers, artists, graphic artists together with children, particularly at very early years, children, classes from local schools, taking them out and letting them all work together with the, with the idea that, of course, what is not happening is here, here is that children are being taught by adults. What is happening here is that there is a collaborative learning process going on between the kind of grown-up creator figure, the children who are these incredible, spontaneous creators of language, of movement, of gesture, of behavior, total rule breakers because they don't see the rules, and the landscape itself. And the work that is coming out of that idea that everyone is is making together is incredible. These they're called the, the, one of the most beautiful images, perhaps one you could use is a, is a, uh, these fantastical maps that are being made. I saw those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're they're incredible. And suddenly you see this tiny little spinny on the edge of a of a city or a country park in the middle of Huntingdon has become this this wildwood. I wonder if you could take that idea of creating fantastical maps into communities doing things like transition. Yes. Be really yes. interesting. Well, it reminds me of the parish maps projects that Common Ground Angela pioneered. And people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Roger Deakin in the 1980s and 1990s, using involving artists like David Nash, you know, world-class artists, um, and they did exactly that. They, they they sent out a call to parishes around England to make their own parish maps, so a kind of imaginative cartography project. And the maps that came back were incredible and spoke of many forms of change and communication and possibility. Uh, you said that the nine months since The Lost Words came out had sort of shifted some of your thinking around imagination. I wonder if you could just share a little bit what you meant by that. Yeah, I can. It's, in fact, it goes so far as it's transformed my thinking about imagination and about the relationship between culture and change. Um, and I, I just before I say a little bit more about it, I would just say that what I now see is that the book itself is is nothing other than a catalyst now. This is not because of the book. It is because the book arrived as a uh, as a catalyst or a seed crystal into a culture that was ready to precipitate. And it was ready to do so because it was filled with worry and it was filled with hope. And that chemistry fascinates me. So, the, so I, I say all that just to say that I'm not claiming that what has happened around the book is the book's doing. The book is a kind of, is a make, is a, is a catalyst in all this. But what has happened is that it has moved through culture with a speed and a force and a consequence that makes me wonder why I ever do anything other than write, write short spells for children. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, among the many and probably the most powerful consequence is this movement that has begun to place copies of the book in each primary school in in the British Isles. Um, uh, all of Scotland, and these these campaigns have been chiefly kind of crowdfunded, crowdfunded campaigns um, have been started up fully grassroots by individuals who've been moved by the book. It was begun by one one woman in Scotland, a bus driver from Midlothian. Who, who looked at the book and tweeted me and said, 
and this has just knocked me over. I want to get a copy into every school in Scotland. And I said, okay, um, great. Uh, let me know how I can help. And from that began her successful campaign. She raised £25,000 a copy and is now uh, overseeing the really hard bit, which is distribution of, of those single books into every school in Scotland. She's a huge network has sprung up to, to get the books in. And this is where it really changes things, is where you have an individual who's invested in a school, going into the school, giving the book, saying, wow, this, this is about our relationship with the living world and children in particular. Do something with this. This, this has done this to me. Let's see what it does to the children. Um, and the generosity and the gift, something you must be very familiar with, this giving of time, of energy, of passion has been unbelievable. Jane's campaign, the Scottish campaign, has then begun. I think we're up to uh, 28 separate campaigns now. Barking and Dagenham went this morning. Um, and uh, the last week alone has seen um, uh, Yorkshire, Essex, Sussex, with the support of Caroline Lucas behind it, um, and County Clare in Ireland, um, uh, sort of startup campaigns, and um, I think we'll. There's a, a copy has gone into every care home in Wales, given by a business, um, because that's another way we lose words is through dementia, the end of life as well as the beginning of life. And so none of this is to do with me. I just kind of watch it and help it along its way as best I can. And it's something you know on a much bigger and, and more exciting scale with transition towns. So someone described what was happening to the lost words and he said, you know what you've done? You've made a piece of open source software and you've, you've kind of released it and now everyone's using it to, to write outcomes for themselves. And I mean, I, I should say there is obviously a sense to which it's not open source in the, in, insofar as one has to kind of buy the book, but these campaigns are not, are not bringing me any income. I give lots of money to each one that starts up. I'm already giving a bunch of my royalties straight to a, a youth conservation charity called Action for Conservation, and that's, that will continue for as long as the book continues. Um, and the books are all given a, a massive cost discount anyway by, by the publishers to enable the campaign. So there isn't really a vested interest from that side. It's, for me, it's, it's seeing exactly as you describe. And, and story is it. Story is, is what makes it contagious. People say, oh, you, you know, this, this, this. So there's a, a lovely recent campaign that's just begun in Sheffield, where, as you will know very well, there is a, a huge battle ongoing between the local re residents mm -hmm. and the county council over the, the mass felling of, of, of up to 15,000 street trees in, in, in that city. And um, a tree has begun the fundraising campaign in Sheffield, the Vernon Oak. Um, of course, it's not the tree, but it's it's represented by the tree, and therefore it's become deeply involved with that that campaign, that grassroots campaign to save the forest canopy, the city canopy. And in turn, as soon as I realised this was what they were doing, I suddenly thought, well, you know, I'm going to write a spell, a charm against harm for this trees of Sheffield and for the tree, for any tree, any tree that we really want to keep that needs saving. So I'm now writing a, a kind of incantation that I will give freely obviously to as a kind of to to the people of Sheffield and to anyone any true campaigners anywhere in the world who want to speak a spell to try and save it's called Heartwood to want to try and save save the tree from the bite of the of the chainsaw and you know that that for me has just been thrilling and that's the way story begets story and gift begets gift you know this is what Lewis Hyde says in the in the gift he says gifts give on that that is their gift so 
by giving freely with an open hand without expecting uh, you know, equal reciprocity within the same currencies, what is created is, is more. And in that sense, it's like grace. That is what grace does. Grace gives freely and produces more than itself. I don't know whether it's worth just talking briefly about time. Uh, one of the things that Rebecca says in Hope in the Dark, Rebecca Solnit says in Hope in the Dark, is that uh, sometimes she says, she says writers, writers write, they scatter their seeds. Rats might eat them or they might rot. Some seeds take 5,000 years uh, and and the rasp of wildfire to germinate. And she's talking about dormancy there. She's talking about uncertainty and dormancy. And the uncertainty part is that you do not know whether your ideas will become wild, but still you've got to make them and, and scatter them into the world. And I think that's really important. So there's a courage question there that's born of not knowing, because not knowing isn't just telling you they're not going to catch turn wild it's telling me they might and that might is is that is the real hope um and then there's a dormancy question which is about time and that says you know it might not happen in your lifetime you might be you might be under the sod by the time your ideas or your words catch that does matter and that doesn't matter it, it doesn't matter because great it'll happen you don't need the affirmation of it it does matter, I guess, because what we're talking about are urgent questions. You know, this is change that can't really take two generations, can't really take 5,000 years or the, or the equivalent in human time of that. You mentioned about the Anthropocene and you said we could come back to why you have a problem with that word, the Anthropocene. <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, this, as you may or may not know, is a, is a hugely contested term in um, certainly social sciences and the humanities. And the, the reasons for the contestation are, uh, are, are more or less as follows, that it, um, it, it suggests that all of Anthropos, all of, all of humanity is, is the cause of the Anthropocene. Uh, and in that sense, it kind of elides and smooths out a very complex history of blame and a very complex history of, 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 of vulnerability and outcome. So. Clearly, um, the person in the Sundarbans who is going to be the person flooded out of their home in, in two years' time by rising sea levels is not, is not the person, is not the Anthropos responsible for the Anthropocene. Um, so, for, so the counter-argument to that is often suggested it should be rechristened the Econocene or the Capitalocene because actually it's, it's capitalism that has driven the local so that, that's one of the objections. And the other, I think, really interesting one uh, is that this um, sort of technocratic description of a, of, a, of a stratigraphic phenomenon suggests that it's technocracy that will get us out of this mess as well, that uh, this is, a, this is a, a, an epoch that's been brought into being by, by a sort of engineered, a global uh, capitalist managerialism, and that that's what will that's what will get us out of it mm. as well. And so I think um, these, this kind of social justice objection to it and then a, a deeper objection to the politics that it arguably encodes are, are, are some of the objections to it. So there are many, many uh, versions of what the Anthropocene should be called, the, 
the Cthulhu scene, the Lycanus scene. And I think the last point, the other really big objection, I think this is fascinating, is actually it's incredibly arrogant. Actually, what's shaping the world now, I mean, yes, we are bringing about long-lasting change. Um, we all know what those are, soil damage, sick, great extinction, biodiversity and habitat depletion. And we're going to leave a terrible mess in the rock record, in the strata. But actually to think that we are the species, that is, that is the, the, the world shaper, the earth shaper, the titans. You know, what, what about bacteria? What about, what about methane? What about viruses? What about ice? These are these are substances, light, forms of liveliness that are massively, chronically world shaping as well. And it, it, I think some people suggest that calling it the Anthropocene reinforces precisely the kind of exclusory um, species exceptionalism that has got us, got us here in the first place. So I think these debates are precisely what makes the Anthropocene so valuable as an idea. It's it stops us short. It buttonholes us. It headbutts us, and then it asks us, you know, really, really hard questions while we're reeling. And I think that's where its value lies. And not long after we speak, I'm I'm going to be in North Carolina, beginning a three-year project called the the Luce L U C E Anthropocene Working Group, and that I guess might be one of your what if spaces. So it's bringing together I think 15 um, thinkers to Duke University. Um, there's a there's a theologian, there's an environmental historian, there's a sinologist, there's a there's an environmental lawyer, there's there's me, uh, there's a native indigenous knowledge, traditional uh, ecological knowledge specialist, and we're going to work together for three years and try as best we can to devise what might be a good Anthropocene scenario. So I'll report back in three years, Robert. 